You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 28th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we cross live to Carlotta Rebello, who's in Ukraine for us, for the latest on the situation there. Then to Brazil. From accusations of Satanism to pedophilia, he wasn't the prettiest one to cover. But the final days of the campaign are here culminating in the all-important TV debate between both candidates. Ahead of the presidential election on Sunday, we'll analyse the likely outcome and what that might mean for the world. We'll also be in Northern Ireland, where the deadline for a resolution to the legislative stalemate passed at midnight without an agreement. Plus, we'll examine record profits from Shell and the impact a windfall tax could have on energy giants and a population struggling to pay the bills. We'll have a rustle through the front pages from our Zurich studio, chat with our business editor about the latest financial news and finally we'll have a little light relief. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. That's Andrew Miller, who'll round up the week for us with a wry look back at the last seven days. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The United States has cautioned that any attacks by Moscow on American satellites would be met with retaliation after a Russian official said that any involved in the war in Ukraine would be considered legitimate targets. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan is expected to begin a protest march today from Lahore to Islamabad to call for early elections. And Elon Musk has completed his takeover of Twitter, closing a deal worth $44 billion. Do stay tuned to Monocle24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has accused Russia of launching more than 30 drone attacks on Ukraine in the last 48 hours. He said that in addition, Moscow had also carried out some 4,500 missile strikes and over 8,000 air raids in total. Well, joining me now on the line from Kyiv is Carlotta Rebello, Monocle 24 senior producer. Carlotta, good morning to you. I understand you had a very disturbed night. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, yes, we um, were all uh, prepared here to uh, put the potential of spending a night in a bomb shelter. There had been a few air raid sirens throughout the day in Kyiv, um, but um, those didn't last for long, about half an hour. But overnight at around 1.20 uh, a.m., um, the air raid sirens went off. Um, the mood in the city was very much to take it seriously because, you know, Vladimir Putin had been speaking earlier that day and um, all the talks that have been happening over the past few days about um, a dirty bomb uh, being accused on both sides and um, just as a precaution, um, we went to the bomb shelter. Uh, It was quite interesting to 
see how different um, and how much more seriously people are taking it now compared to last time I was here back in July. Um, and it's in the subtle signs. Last time in July, uh, there was also an instance where we had to spend a few hours at a bomb shelter overnight. And it very much came across back then as, you know, just a nuisance to have to leave your room and um, nothing is going to happen. What's the point? And this time, everyone that was down there, you know, had uh, their uh, go bag, their grab bag. So the bag that has, you know, all your documents, um, enough stuff to sustain you for a few days if needed, um, a warm jacket. So people are going to the shelters prepared uh, to the eventuality that they might stay there for longer. One of the um, fellow journalists that was in the bomb shelter with me last night, um, who has been in Kiev for the past two weeks or so, told me that um, just a few days ago, they had another air raid siren, they went to the shelter, um, and it coincided with electricity uh, uh, blackout. So they were there in the darkness just with a torchlight. So there's that added element as, you know, the electricity grid remains uh, volatile uh, as Ukraine starts to rebuild from the strikes that Russia did earlier um, this month. Mm. And of course, there were overnight strikes in the city of Mykolaiv. Uh, yes. Uh, so last night when that air raid siren went off, it affected seven regions um, in Ukraine and slowly the uh, sirens and alerts were lifted. But uh, we do have indication that there were strikes uh, in Mykolaiv overnight uh, out of the seven regions. It seems to be uh, the only one that um, uh, were the counter defences uh, were not able to be successful. Mm. Now, what about these drone attacks? Because Zelensky said overnight that Russia had carried out over 30 drone attacks in the last two days. What can you tell us about that? Yes, and these, um, it, it's quite interesting because the, the statement, the pre-recorded statement from Zelensky was recorded you know, in a blackout um, a Kiev uh, where you can see um, um, just how dark the city is at the moment to spare the energy grid. Um, he was talking about a total of 4,500 missile strikes um, leading to over 8,000 air raids, uh, but drone attacks specifically, uh, 30 of them. Now, this is significant. These are majority the the drones that the West believes Iran has supplied to Russia, despite mo- both Moscow and Tehran continuing to deny it. But um, here on the ground, this is very much taken as a fact and um, it has not been disputed. Mm. Uh, and there's a protest today by, <coughs> excuse me, there's a protest today uh, by the Iranian diaspora. Yes, so this uh, ca- um, was called late uh, yesterday and um, uh, it's happening at the Independence Square here in Kiev at around midday. Um, and um, this is, you know, organised by... Um, a group uh, that represents the Iranian diaspora here in Ukraine, um, speaking to the media earlier today, earlier yesterday, sorry, was uh, Goreshi Masud, who's um, uh, a member of the Territorial Defense Forces uh, of Ura- Iranian descent. And he was saying that, you know, the representatives of the Iranian community in Ukraine uh, declare that they do not support the actions of the Iranian authorities who are supporting, quote, Putin's dictatorial regime in this war against Ukraine. Um, and then they added how they are a big part of the community here in the, the country and they want Ukraine to continue to fight for its right 
to exist mm. and freedom. Now, talking about Putin, he gave this very, very long speech yesterday um, in which, I mean, it's clear his worldview is, is different from, from those in the West. What's the reaction been to that speech? It is interesting because when Putin was speaking, I was um, out and I was sort of with a few people and, you know, the notification just popped up on my phone. So I mentioned that today. I was like, oh, um, did you know that Putin is speaking now? And we were, uh, I was met with a mix of uh, like, let's not talk about it and uh, a few eye rolls um, and very much being asked, oh, what is he lying about now? <laughs> Um, but of course, that's the immediate reaction. And then um, an hour or so later, once the speech was over and news stories started to come in, people here were you know, reading it. And it's like, uh, particularly the sentence where he was saying that because of what's happening uh, here, because of the war he uh, it has uh, inflicted upon Ukraine, um, uh, that uh, there was a sentence in the speech saying that uh, the world is facing its most um, dangerous time since World War Two, and the reaction here is very much like, okay, yeah, of course, because of you. <laughs> so, um, uh, but there is worry. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, um, when the air raid sirens went off last night, you know, if when the speech went on, people gave me an eye roll, was like, oh, he's just gonna lie. What's the point? When the air raid sirens go off, it's like, we need to take it seriously because he was speaking today. So who knows what might happen? Um, so the reaction here is to never take anything that comes out of Moscow as truth, but to act uh, towards your best interest and try to stay safe uh, because you never know what might happen next. Carlotta, you stay safe too. That's Carlotta Rabello in Kiev. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. Ten past seven here in London, ten past three a.m. in Rio de Janeiro. Well, on Sunday, voters in Brazil return to the polls to vote for a new president, though the contenders aren't new. Jair Bolsonaro is the incumbent and Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, or Lula, has previously served two terms. Neither candidate got enough support to win the election outright earlier this month, hence the weekend runoff. Monaco's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, recently returned from Brazil and he filed this report. Oof, what an election. From accusations of Satanism to pedophilia, he wasn't the prettiest one to cover. But the final days of the campaign are here, culminating in the all-important TV debate between both candidates, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro and former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. 
The TV Globo debate is a staple of Brazilian elections and in the past did influence the final vote on Sunday. Not sure if that's going to happen this year. It seems the majority of the votes for both Lula and Bolsonaro are crystallized. But of course, there is a small number of undecided voters that could make a difference. The last week has been very bad for Bolsonaro's camp, mainly because an ally, former congressman Roberto Jefferson, threw grenades and shot the police while they were trying to arrest him at his house for insulting and threatening a Supreme Federal Court judge. Bolsonaro, of course, is trying to distance himself from Jefferson, saying even that there was no picture of him and the former deputy. Clearly not the case, as pointed out by many official pictures of them together. Lula is set to win, although with a narrow lead, perhaps. He will not have an easy time in Congress and Senate, where Bolsonaro has a powerful base. He is dealing with a very different Brazil than when he was elected back in 2002 a much more extremist one in many ways. It'll be smart if he chooses centrist names that will help to heal such a divided country. With Bolsonaro elected or not, he unfortunately left his mark in the world of Brazilian politics, an aggressive hard right that Brazil has never experienced since its redemocratization. The vote will have an impact on how Brazil is perceived worldwide, if Bolsonaro is re-elected, Brazil is set to continue being a pariah for many countries, while a Lula victory could be a slow reintroduction of Brazil to the world stage, where we could lead again in the climate conferences, have a better relationship with our fellow South American countries, and reconnect with important business partners, such as France, remembering that Bolsonaro personally offended President Macron's wife. At the moment, there's very much a feel of tension in the air. The world will be watching, and I look forward to cast my vote on Sunday. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And listening to that with me was Fiona McCauley, who's Professor of Gender, Peace and Development at the University of Bradford. Fiona, remind us of the two candidates, their backgrounds, and what it is that they stand for. So uh, Lula, uh, as he is known popularly in Brazil, Luis Ignacio da Silva, um, is a very seasoned politician. He's now well into his 70s and he made his name as a trade union leader during the tail end of the military dictatorship. By the end of the 1970s, he was leading a major trade union movement and he founded the Workers' Party, the PT, which he currently still leads. Uh, he ran for a presidential election several times without success until he was finally elected in 2002 and served two terms in office, managed then to get his successor elected, that was Dilma Rousseff, and she was unfortunately um, deposed through an impeachment process six years later. But he is one of the big beasts of Brazilian politics and one of the best known names actually around the world. Now, Jair Bolsonaro, spent nearly 30 years as an obscure backbencher in Congress. But he was known principally for the kinds of outrageous statements that he would make occasionally. And so he was quite often called upon by the media, in fact, to, to say the kinds of things that would garner headlines. It was therefore very surprising that he decided to run in the 2018 elections. And nobody really thought he had much of a chance, except he was obviously tapping into something in Brazilian politics that was unexpressed. 
um, around a nostalgia for authoritarianism, for social order. He converted to evangelical Christianity and has very much worked the kind of the religious moral angle. And so it was to many people surprised that he was elected as the Brazilian uh, president. And he has very much continued with the same kind of discourse for which he was known, in fact, throughout his whole um, career. Mm. What, what are the voters' main concerns? I think the voters are concerned chiefly about economic issues, um, as is generally the case in Brazil, um, inflation and jobs. And of course, the COVID pandemic hit you know that very hard. And there are many poor voters whose um, income levels and purchasing power has dropped dramatically. Uh, also, there is the issue of crime and violence. So Brazil is a very high crime society. Um, the homicide rate has been dropping for a few years, but it's still pretty high. And more than that, I think it's fear of crime and fear of victimization. So certainly Bolsonaro's um, one of his key platforms, which is to deregulate gun ownership, which he did almost on day one of his presidency, appeals to uh, people who kind of feel that, you know, they have to look after themselves and that the police are not competent and that they face being robbed. Um, so I think it's those are the two main issues. The the outside world may be more concerned about environmental questions, but I don't think that that's what drives Brazilian voters right now. And I think, as your correspondent suggested, there's a very clear polarisation between the two candidates now. And it's also around democracy and anti-democracy, whether liberal democracy should be upheld along with its institutions um, and those who kind of feel that they haven't served the you know Brazil very well, and they're they're rather people who are sympathetic to Bolsonaro's view that you know the Supreme Court and other institutions are just kind of getting in the way of of, of him governing. Mm. I mean that there are suggestions that Bolsonaro might contest the validity of the election, as as Fernando said, the predictive polls show that that Lula is ahead. Do you think that Bolsonaro would do that? And if that's the case, could we see violence? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's been preparing the ground for a questioning of election results even before he won the last election. I mean, he's very much followed the Trump playbook in that sense of of harping on about, you know, the electoral courts can't be trusted and then questioning the electronic voting system and trying to bring in a, a paper-based system. Um, so, yes, I think, he, I think he will because that's what he's been saying consistently for the last four years. The big question is whether he could really succeed in mobilising any other institutions to back him up. And on that, I don't think so because I don't think the armed forces in the end would take an incredibly risky decision on behalf of their institution, which is to say to, to block an electoral result if Lula wins. Similarly, with the military police forces around the country, which are controlled by the 27 governors, again, I don't see them being mobilised as institutions. That said, however, violence is very likely to break out sporadically. So I don't rule out the possibility of you know, individual barracks, uh, either military police or the army kind of wanting to, you know, demonstrate. I think more likely is that there will be clashes between supporters of both sides on the streets. And then you might see that the police do not police those demonstrations impartially. Um, I think the fact, as your correspondent mentioned, that Roberto Jefferson, who was a very close associate of Bolsonaro, extraordinarily opened fire on federal police officers opened fire and threw grenades at them and 
was not immediately put under arrest, but actually was filmed kind of chatting and laughing with the police officers, seemed to suggest almost that there was going to be kind of carte blanche for that kind of reaction against the institutions of law and order. So I think it's going to be a very tense few days after the election results come out. And when do we expect those results? So they voting closes at 10 o'clock in the evening. Um, the electronic voting system is extremely efficient and very quick. So um, by the early hours of the morning UK time and certainly by around sort of, you know, midnight Brazilian time, it will be pretty clear what the results are. There are one or two states which are on different time zones. And so results um, are slow to come in. The, the, the first results that will come in would be from overseas, from the uh, expat population living around the world. And those give some kind of indicator, but not a very clear one of, of what the tendencies will be. But yes, it will be very fast result. Um, and there won't be much argument about those results because the, the system is, regardless his, of his questioning of it, Bolsonaro's questioning, it is a pretty robust and reliable system. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That's Fiona McCauley there. And we'll bring you reaction from that debate on Monocle on Saturday. That's from 9am London time. Now, still to come on the programme, Andrew Muller will be reflecting on the week's weird and wonderful stories. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. In the Northern Irish Assembly election in May, Sinn Féin became the first Nationalist Party to win the most number of seats at Stormont. The Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, came second with the Alliance Party third. That result meant that there was a majority for Assembly members who accept the Northern Irish Protocol. That's the agreement which creates a new post-Brexit trade border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But the DUP rejects the protocol, saying it's contrary to the spirit of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. That's the peace deal which set up the power-sharing arrangements in Northern Ireland. The DUP refused to nominate a Deputy First Minister and blocked the appointment of a Speaker, meaning the legislator Assembly has not been able to function. The parties had a six-month legislative time frame to form an administration and that expired at midnight. Well, Rebecca Black is a journalist with the Press Association based in Belfast. Rebecca, tell us what happened at midnight. Is that uh, grace period formally over now? Um, yes. As of midnight, um, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris, um, is expected, well, he must call 
an election. And speaking at Northern Ireland, the Prayers Committee at Westminster a couple of weeks ago, he said that's exactly what he'll do. At that committee, he actually said at one minute past midnight, but um, fortunately for the media pack in Belfast, it wasn't one minute past midnight. So we're expecting that announcement to come later today, potentially around lunchtime. And why is the DUP so against the Northern Ireland Protocol? How would they like it to change? Um, well, I mean, I think if you remember back to um, the moment of Brexit a couple of years ago, Northern Ireland was the, sort of the very last thing that held it all up. Um, and at that point, the Northern Ireland Protocol was um, negotiated and agreed. However, um, the DEP regarded it as putting a, putting a border in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because under the terms of the protocol, um, there there, there, there are trade buyers. You'd normally have trade buyers between the EU and the UK. They didn't want to put that on the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland because of the history of the troubles here and they were concerned it would spark violence or attract um, attacks. So the compromise was that they put, these, um, they put this border down the Irish Sea so that when goods arrive in Northern Ireland from Great Britain, they have to go through certain checks. Um, there's a small amount of checks at the minute. There are set to be a lot more checks further down the line um, when some of these grace periods come to an end um, because there's been a huge series of grace periods negotiated to try and sort of ease the protocol in. But um, the DUP, they oppose it in, for two reasons. One, politically, they, they see it as a widening of the gulf between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Um, and also in terms of business and trade, they say that it's costing businesses a lot of money, and it's also um, it's making it it's making it, it's making it less appealing for businesses in GB to send goods to Northern Ireland as well. So that, that's the sort of objection. What's the likely outcome of an election? I mean, m- might it just end up exactly the same, uh, and then what happens? Yeah, I mean, the population in North are very fed up at the idea of, an, of another election. So soon we, we had one in May. So I, I suppose, I mean, you'd imagine the turnout probably will be, for, will be lower than it was before. Obviously, in May, we had an historic result in Sinn Féin. Uh, became the largest party in the Assembly for the first time, which meant that Sinn Féin are entitled to nominate um, a First Minister. Um the DEP insists that they're confident that um, they're standing by what they were elected to do and that they will not be punished if there's another election. However, it's quite hard to imagine that they won't be. Privately, Sinn Féin are quite, ex- are, I wouldn't say excited, but you know, Sinn Féin expect they'll potentially do even better and potentially pick up another one or two seats. I mean, it's a tall order if, if you imagine being a politician here and having to go to people's stores at a time when the gas prices are rising so much, at a time when food prices are going up, people are really struggling and the EP are going to be knocking at the door and they're going to have to explain to people that there isn't, there isn't an assembly because of, because of their objection to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And while the DUP insists that their supporters back them 100% and their supporters want them to take a stand, you do wonder... You do wonder about that.
Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That's Rebecca Black there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russia's President Vladimir Putin declared that the West's so-called dominance over world affairs is coming to an end in a speech to the Valdai Discussion Club on Thursday in Moscow. Meanwhile, the White House has cautioned that any attacks on American satellites would be met with retaliation after a Russian official said that any involved in the war in Ukraine would be considered legitimate targets. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan is expected to begin a protest march today from Lahore to Islamabad. Mr Khan, who was ousted earlier this year by a vote of no confidence, is demanding that the country's elections, scheduled for late next year, be brought forward. The government expects to deploy around 30,000 law enforcement officers to encircle the capital for protection. And Elon Musk has completed his takeover of Twitter, closing a deal worth $44 billion. His first action was reportedly to fire the social media platform's CEO, Parag Agrawal, and several other top executives. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, politicians and campaigners in the UK have called for a windfall tax on energy companies after Anglo-Dutch giant Shell doubled its third quarter profits as the population faces soaring energy bills and the threat of blackouts. Well, I'm joined now by Tessa Khan, oil and gas expert and director of Uplift, an organisation helping to move the UK towards a fossil fuel-free future. Uh, Tessa, many thanks for coming on Monocle24. Why are the profits so high at present? Good morning, Georgina. Great to be with you. So in short, uh, the profits that Shell have reported this quarter, um, like its profits and the profits of other oil and gas giants over the course of the last year, have been driven by the soaring price of gas in particular, but oil as well, which have, in the case of gas, uh, increased about fivefold since this time last year. Gas has, uh, oil has doubled in price um, over the course of the last year as well. You know, that's driven by a number of factors, including an increase in demand post-COVID, but primarily by Russia's war in Ukraine and the squeeze on Russian gas supplies uh, that we've been feeling all across Europe. Mm. Now, there was a windfall tax introduced by Rishi Sunak when he was still Chancellor back in May. Why has this not delivered? Why isn't it enough? And are there big loopholes in it? Yeah, great question. So in short, the windfall tax that Rishi Sunak introduced in May as Chancellor uh, increased the tax rate on oil and gas companies by 25% in the UK. But the tax regime for the oil and gas industry in the UK has been so weak historically that even with that 25% increase, we are still taxing oil and gas companies below the global average rate. The global average rate in normal times for oil and gas companies is 70% and we're still at 65%. Plus, as you alluded to, there is a massive loophole built into the windfall tax that means that if you invest in new oil and gas fields over the course of the next three years in the UK, you effectively get a 91p write-off of every pound of your windfall tax bill. And that's why Shell has come out and said that it won't actually be paying any tax in the UK this quarter or indeed possibly this year, even though it's reporting record or close to record profits. And that, frankly, you know, is unacceptable at a time when the UK government has admitted that we are in an economic crisis. We know that there are going to be about 7 million households 
who can't afford their energy bills, who are living in fuel poverty at the end of this year, even with the support that the government has tried to give via its fuel uh, energy price cap freeze. So there's this obvious source of revenue that's on the table for the UK government that it's failing to exploit at a time when so many people are so desperate. And bizarrely, I mean, Shell appears to be more enthusiastic about paying a windfall tax than the government is in demanding one. So what's going on? Well, exactly. And that's and Shell isn't alone. The CEO of another major oil and gas company, Equinor, the Norwegian oil company, has also come out and said that governments should tax oil and gas companies more. And they realise it's because it is morally indefensible and that oil and gas companies are in a really delicate place in terms of and vulnerable place in terms of their social licence, given they are recording billion pound profits. They're engaging in billion pound share buybacks and dividend uh, handouts when, as I said, you know, people across the country in a country as rich as the UK, millions of families are being driven into despair as a result of exactly the same economic forces, the global gas price that is resulting in a purely windfall profit on the part of these companies in that they're not doing anything additional. They're not exercising any more skill than usual. They just happen to be in the right place in the right time. And they can certainly afford to be taxed more and realise that their social licence and reputation is on the line if they aren't seen to be contributing. So why won't the government move on it? That's a great question. And I think, you know, that has a lot to do with the political influence of the oil and gas industry broadly in the UK. We know that um, they are they have the ear of government. That's why the UK has actually historically been the most profitable country in the world for large oil and gas projects and why, for example, in 2020, uh, Shell paid tax in every country in which it operates, except for the UK, where it received a £100 million tax rebate. I mean, the UK government has, at the behest of the oil and gas industry, designed an incredibly generous tax regime. There are dozens of members of the House of Lords uh, and the House of Commons who have shareholdings in oil and gas companies. You know, the oil and gas industry has its tentacles all over government. And that's really, I think, the only explanation for why the government isn't isn't taking advantage of this situation and taxing the government, the, the industry more. So is this likely to change? Well, I think the pressure is only going to continue to mount. And we heard in the lead up to the windfall tax, initial windfall tax being introduced in May, uh, that the government wasn't prepared to consider it. And I think that, you know, as we in the UK hear the next fiscal statement towards the end of November and the country has to come to grips with apparently how bad the country's finances are, it's going to seem indefensible that the government doesn't take advantage of this massive pot of revenue that it could otherwise have access to and that indeed, you know, other countries are also looking to to increase taxes on. So I'm I'm confident that that the government will see sense on the issue because we're simply in too desperate desperate a situation, I think, for them to ignore such an obvious source of support. Tessa, thank you very much indeed. That's Tessa Khan from Uplift. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's 
8.35 in Zurich and it's 7.35 here in London and we'll continue now with today's papers. Joining me from our studio at Dufferstrasse 90 in Zurich is Noel Salmi, who's travel, culture and sustainability writer. Uh, Noel, thanks so much for coming in. I expect you're in uh, with the cafe all buzzing around you and a lovely cup of um, Swiss coffee by your side. Uh, let's start with really quite a positive story, a surprisingly positive story, also from a surprising source. Now, this is the New York Times, uh, and it's a story from David Wallace-Wells. Now, you, people might remember that Wallace-Wells uh, uh, was the writer of The Uninhabitable Earth. That was a, an, a well-known essay that uh, later published as a book, which described a coming climate apocalypse. He seems to have changed his mind. Um, yes. Hi, Georgina. That's right. It's some cautiously good news from The New York Times and specifically from David Wallace-Wells. Uh, he has an upcoming essay in the Sunday uh, magazine of The New York Times where he um, retracts a little bit from that earlier apocalyptic vision of ex weather extremes, famine, economic collapse. Uh, he is now more optimistic, given that scientists are now predicting a warming closer to two to three degrees Celsius, not the five degrees that he describes in this book. Um, that's because the use of coal, which feeds nearly one third of global energy needs, has been steadily declining. Renewable energy is getting even cheaper. Solar prices have decreased 85 percent in the last decade. Wind costs are down 55 percent making these truly viable alternatives to fossil fuels. And of course, governments are finally adopting serious plans to switch their economies to renewables. And of course, Georgina, this doesn't mean it's all going to be wine and roses. We've already seen extreme weather conditions and continuing drought all over the world. As the New York Times piece notes, Pakistan alone has seen both heat waves with temperatures nearing 50 degrees Celsius and monsoon floods that recently submerged one third of the country. Uh, so this is no time to uh, sit back. Um, but uh, as Wallace Wells himself says, with continued action, we can arrive at a solution that is certainly not ideal, but uh, but at least survivable. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that is extremely good news. Let's go to Portugal now. And this is news about a new phone app, uh, which sounds absolutely fabulous. Tell us more. Uh, yes, the Diario de Noticias is reporting on a new mobile phone app that details where to find all of the contemporary art available in Portugal at any time. Uh, this app will be launching next week on November 2nd. It has an English name, appropriately, um, the Portugal Contemporary Art Guide, since it will be so helpful to travelers. Uh, it can be downloaded for free by anyone. Uh, onto your mobile phone, and it's the inspiration of the Portuguese art magazine Contemporânea. According to the magazine's founder and editor, Celina Brash, uh, the app will provide real-time, continuously updated information about contemporary artists and exhibits and where to find them. It will list not just museums and galleries, but also public and private collections, foundations, and even nonprofit art spaces. Uh, so Braz says until now, both tourists in Portugal and locals have had to rely on Facebook and other less complete sources to find contemporary art in the country. Um, you can search for upcoming shows, you can look what's happening now, and it will all be integrated into Google Maps. Um, so the Portugal Contemporary Art Guide was created with support from the Ministry of Culture and will launch next week uh, at 
with a little bit of fanfare at Lisbon's Foge Palace. Fantastic. And I imagine that that will be the template for many other similar uh, initiatives from, from other countries. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now let's have a look at Zurich City Council and maternity leave. That's right. Um, so the Tagesanzeiger is reporting that the Zurich City Council wants to make it easier for new mothers in politics by paying their council members maternity leave. So currently in Switzerland, new mothers who are also representatives in local, cantonal, or federal councils risk forfeiting their 14-week maternity leave payments if they show up to even one parliamentary session, no matter how important the vote. Um, So basically the word is in Switzerland that you have to, it's a baby pausa means a politic pausa. So motherhood means no politics for a while. Um, And these mothers aren't even allowed to select a political representative to vote for them uh, in a particular vote. So this outdated system has um, basically meant that expectant mothers have to bow out of politics. Um, Young women have to think twice before running for office. And luckily in Zurich, uh, this will no longer be the case. Um, The city council is expected to adopt a resolution next week whereby if a new mother uh, is determined by the Social Insurance Administration to have violated her maternity leave and thus lose her payments, the city council will pick up those payments for her. And that's an amount, Georgina, of about 20,000 Swiss francs. And there's usually about one or two new mothers on the Zurich City Council in a given year. Um, So with this move, the city council hopes it will influence the debate on the federal uh, level as well. As City Council Member Martin Birkley said, the aim isn't really to force new mothers to attend Parliament if they don't want to, but to make sure that they don't have to choose between motherhood and politics. Mm. And generally, how good is Switzerland on benefits for pregnant mothers? Oh, it's quite good. Um, it's quite generous. Uh, but uh, but they're also quite strict. As you know, here uh, in Switzerland, everything is varied by the book. And so showing up for one particular uh, vote is considered going to work. So, Very interesting stuff. Noelle, thank you very much indeed. That was Noelle Selmy joining us from our Zurich studio. And this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, let's have some business news now. And I'm joined in the studio, real live person sitting across from me. Thank you for being here, David Hadari, who's Monocle's business editor. Good morning to you. Morning, Georgina. Now, Twitter is all a flutter because, of course, it now has a new owner. That's Elon Musk. And we didn't know if he would take it over or he wouldn't take it over. And what would happen? He has taken it over and there have been some instant reactions. Yes, they have indeed. Well, um, this brings to an end probably one of the longest running business sagas of recent years. And Elon Musk has already been quite busy at Twitter. He's fired the chief executive, Parag Agrawal, and he's also fired the CFO and the head of legal, which will have... uh, will have uh, lawyers' feathers in a flap. Uh, And he also tweeted, the bird is free. Um, And there have been reports over the last few weeks that he would fire 75% of the staff. He's been heard telling telling staff there that those reports are exaggerated. But as we've seen time and time again with Elon Musk, 
Uh, what he says on one day might differ from what he does on another. He changes with the weather. Yeah. Now, one of the people he fired was the person responsible for banning Donald Trump from the platform. Will Trump be back on Twitter? Well, so uh, Elon Musk has said that he's a free speech absolutist, although it, it appears that even absolutism has its limits. So I saw Henry Mance, who's an FT journalist, tweet yesterday about Musk blocking him after writing a critical column. As for Trump, the question remains... Um, about whether he'll readmit Donald Trump, what that means for the 2024 election, whether anyone apart from us journalists still use Twitter. Um, but um, Musk has sought to, re- uh, has sought to reassure uh, advertisers that Twitter will, will, not be, will not become a free-for-all and that he wants it to be respected, so partly he, so he doesn't lose all their money, which is a huge proportion of their, of their revenues. But also, I think uh, he doesn't want to uh, upset the apple cart too quickly. As for Trump... Who knows? <laughs> As ever. Um, I wonder what kind of impact uh, this has had on, on, on the, the share price of Twitter. Um, I haven't actually seen I think he completed it late last night. Um, uh, that will be something I would have to check on. Yeah. Well, let's just have a quick look at something we were talking about earlier. So we were talking about oil and gas, these huge profits being made by companies like Shell. And the International Energy Agency, which is the OECD's energy watchdog, has released its uh, annual report. So tell us more about this. What are the headlines from the report? So the first big one, I would say, is probably that the IEA is saying it expects the world's thirst for oil to start peaking later this decade. And part of that's due to estimations that Russian energy exports will drop in a long-term response to its invasion of Ukraine in a, in a shift that has already started to but will continue to reshape global markets. And the second, I would say, is that if governments make good on policy goals that they've set in motion in response to the Ukraine war, uh, they may actually speed up the shift away from fossil fuels. Well, and there have been plenty of other reports relating to fossil fuels, haven't there? Yeah, there have indeed. Uh, this is what's becoming sort of the uh, annual, it's that time of year again, you know, not quite Christmas, but uh, we're, r- we're ramping up towards COP27. I can't believe it's been a year already. And unfortunately, while fossil fuel use is expected to, to start coming down in the next few years, according to the IEA, uh, it's not coming down quickly enough to avert some of the worst consequences of climate change. So the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, try saying that uh, at quarter <laughs> to eight in the morning, uh, said the other day that we're, we're way off track to avoid a 2.5 uh, degree Celsius increase in temperatures uh, from, from uh, pre-industrial levels. The World Meteorological Organization, again, a fantastic tongue twister of a name, reported the biggest year-on-year jump in methane concentrations in 2021 since measurements began. Um, part of that's human activity, but part of that's um, natural causes, possibly sped up by human activity. Mm. And COP27, what do we expect to come out of that? We know now that the British Prime Minister says he's way too busy to go. Yeah, just too busy to avert a uh, uh, world-ending climate crisis, but there you go. Um, it's all about priorities, I guess. Um you should expect to see some of the topics that weren't fully resolved in Glasgow last year back on the agenda. Most of them are revolving around money. So there's money to help uh, countries recover from the effects of climate change rather than just prepare for it. There's the establishment of a global carbon emissions trading platform and uh, sorry, market even then the platform. And also coal will be a sticking point. You'll remember Alok Sharma's tears last year when uh, when a, a deal to sort of put in place a timeline for phasing out coal was was scuppered at the last minute by some of the large developing countries. Mm. So that will be on the agenda too. And of course, Alok Sharma is still the the, the chief sort of representative from, from Britain. 
I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was fired as um, it, from one of his roles uh, as part of Rishi Sunak's uh, trial. But I think uh, with with this no longer being in the UK, it's in Egypt. It's not one of the um, one of the sort of big uh, every four years cops. This is a sort of slightly minor one. So I think some of the headlines we'll see coming out of it, maybe some of the leaders we see attending it, will be on a slightly smaller scale than last year. Let's go to the European Central Bank now because uh, uh, it raised interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point for the second time in a row on Thursday. Uh, What does this mean? Uh, Well, so what it means is that, uh, like many central banks around the world, the ECB are raising the cost of borrowing, very simply, to try and incentivise consumers to keep their money in the bank, to not spend it and take the heat out of the record inflation that we've been seeing. And can we expect to see more of that from other central banks? Almost without doubt, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England meet next week. and They're widely expected to do something very similar. Um, and in the se- seven or eight you know, seconds that Kwasi Kwarteng was Chancellor, and <laughs> remember him and Liz Truss hadn't rode back on the disastrous mini-budget, the, uh, the Bank of England was expected to aggressively raise rates to counteract the inflationary forces of, of their tax cuts. But even though that's now been reversed, the market's still expecting an increase from the Bank of England. And do you think aggressive central bank policy will be enough to stave off recession? Is it completely inevitable now? Well, that's the million-dollar question, is it? The fa- a lot of financial analysts and economists are starting to ask the question of how much more central banks can raise rates without causing unnecessary pain to consumers and businesses. And partly the pay- that's partly the pain that would come with a recession. Uh, By some measures, the Eurozone is already in recession, partly due to the energy crisis. Uh, And there's an extent to which governments which have unveiled measures to ease uh, rising cost of living, like Liz Truss tried to and like Rishi Sunak may well still do. Um, It's possible that those governments around the world and their central banks who want people to spend less Uh, are on a bit of a collision course. Mm, mm. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. But unfortunately, we have to live through it. It's going to affect all of us absolutely directly. Yeah, well, it's the old Chinese curse, isn't it? May you live in interesting times. (laughs) Uh, Let's go back to the the cyber world and Meta. Now, investors wiped off more than 80 billion from Meta's market value on Thursday after the Facebook owner reported another quarter of declining revenues. Why does nobody want to use Facebook? Well, um, there's there's a simple answer to that. And it's not so much a question of why people don't want to use Facebook. It's a question of um, where Mark Zuckerberg's strategy is going. There's still a lot of people using Facebook, but he's gone really all in on the metaverse. Um, And that's personally not for me. I don't think I would use it uh, anytime soon. Um, But there's also competition from TikTok for for Instagram, which which Meta owns. Uh, There's changes from Apple, which have made it harder for Meta to target ads to people, which personally I'm in favour of. Um, The changes, that is, not the targeted ads. Um, And there's also the broader macroeconomic backdrop, which has made it harder for everyone in the tech sector. And do you think Mark Zuckerberg can arrest his company's decline? Uh, again, I, I guess the answer to that depends on whether you believe in the metaverse as, uh, as strongly as he does. He's effectively staked his reputation on it, on it and, and the future of the company on it. And while there's a lot of money and the potential benefits from it, um, turn it uh, and turning the metaverse into its own economy, I'm personally still not convinced. Um, and it could take a while for for the sort of drop in revenue that we've seen at Meta to, to sort of be uh, overtaken by any potential 
financial benefits from a, a metaverse. David, thank you very much indeed. That was our business editor, David Hadari, and this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Finally on today's programme, it's Friday, which means it's time for Andrew Muller's wacky and wonderful assessment of what the last seven days have taught us. Here's what we learned. We learned this week the identity of the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister. Do not adjust your preferred audio device. You have not mistakenly downloaded the What We Learned monologue we wrote eight weeks back, nor have we mistakenly uploaded same. Though it would be colossally ironic, of course, if you or we had. It's like radio. The years I have waited for this moment. Mallet... We will now be needing some eerie fortune-teller sort of music. Because eight weeks ago in that What We Learned monologue, we made the following observation, the linking gag of which now appears imbued with eerie prescience. We learned after a Conservative Party leadership election, which may have taken more of our time than her premiership will, that Liz Truss had nudged out her final remaining rival, Rishi Sunak. (laughs) You will have to take our word for this, as that monologue was never broadcast due to national mourning-y reasons prevailing at the time, but it's in there. It is. (coughs) You can't prove it wasn't. Okay. Okay. Fair enough, but let's move on quickly. I'll give you that, I guess. Anyway, we learned that the UK's latest Prime Minister of the Month is Rishi Sunak, who has struggled heartwarmingly into 10 Downing Street from supremely unlikely origins. He is only the second UK Prime Minister to have attended Winchester College. Indeed, the first old Wickhamist Prime Minister was Henry Addington, first Viscount Sidmouth, who served from 1801 to 1804. He was the son of a doctor who became a Conservative politician after marrying into money, and whose dogmatic pursuit of a low-tax economy was continually thwarted by pointless and inane quarrelling with Europe. Verily, times have changed. And we learned that the thinly veiled subtext of Sunak's premiership was to be, I told you so, you morons. Some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes... Nonetheless, Listeners whose will to pay attention to British politics has not terminally ebbed amid recent nonsenses will recall that Sunak was the candidate passed over eight ludicrous weeks ago by the Conservative Party's membership in favour of last month's Prime Minister and future pub quiz answer Liz Truss, who checked out, as in fairness many of us have, when given the boot before the end of our probationary period, with a harumph of, I was right all along, to hell with you all, it's your loss, you'll be sorry when I'm famous. From my time as Prime Minister, 
I am more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges that we face. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare. It's because we do not dare that they are difficult. So we also learned what last Tuesday's entry was on the quote of the day calendar Trust got from a barely interested aunt last Christmas. We learned, however, that the new broom which Sunak claimed to be brandishing was arguably somewhat thin of bristle. Sweeping noises. You're doing literal sweeping noises. Righto. For we learned that the headline of a startlingly minimal cabinet reshuffle was the overturning of arguably the only sensible decision his predecessor made, i.e. sacking Home Secretary Suella Braverman following a security breach. Braverman, whose spoken rhetoric generally sounds like it was composed using a Daily Mail headline-themed magnetic poetry kit, was restored to the Home Office after six days in the cooler. So we learned that Braverman's legions of subversive, and imaginary enemies. It's the Labour Party. It's the Lib Dems. It's the Coalition of Chaos. It's the Guardian reading, to tofu eating, wokarati, dare I say, the anti-growth coalition. Must now regroup. Come on, big tofu, you can do this. We also learned something of the future plans of the man who, it turned out, would not be king. Former Prime Minister no, Boris Johnson no, 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 had no, no, bolted no. back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. We learned, or at least had to take his word for it, that while Johnson had necessary support from his fellow MPs, he had selflessly decided that returning to number 10 would be inopportune, at which we learned that roughly one billion people on Twitter all thought they were the first to think of the gag about the rarity of Boris Johnson pulling out of anything. He has lots of children, do you see? <coughs> We wouldn't open with it either. And indeed, and we'd appreciate due credit for this, we didn't. We learned that, instead, Johnson now intended to work upon his prime ministerial memoirs... No, don't. No. no, no, no. ...and his long-delayed book about Shakespeare. No, please don't. Please no. don't. Don't hear it. Oh, God, Andrew... An understandable response. It seems that you, too, have already learned via Johnson's dreadful previous book on Winston Churchill that Johnson has a predilection for writing his subjects as exceedingly thinly veiled avatars of himself. We learned that we must therefore be braced for Johnson's self-regarding analyses of such characters as Henry V, widely traduced as self-indulgent dilettante, rises to statesmanlike heights during European conflict, Julius Caesar, visionary leader stabbed in the back by vindictive bastards who'd be nothing without him, and Othello, distinguished chieftain with much younger wife led to downfall by manipulative treachery of ungrateful lieutenant. We can't wait either, and in keeping with the unusually erudite tone of this week's monologue, would now like a sound effect evoking an exit pursued by a bear. <coughs> One for the winter's tail heads there. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks to Andrew and everyone behind the Globalist, which returns same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.